Well, I have heard that you're not supposed to start a sermon or a speech with an apology. So I will offer two. (laughs) Forgive the bad voice. I feel great. I just sound horrible. You can pray about that and maybe help me by leaning in to this a little bit because I may be a little soft-spoken today. But the second apology is to the Tim class for this semester because they have heard the opening of the message in regard to this story. So let me take you back to about five months ago. Uh, Part of my summer service took me to Cuba in June. Never been to Cuba before. I was pretty humbled by the experience teaching at Cuba Bible Institute talking to house church leaders about expositional preaching. They really didn't know much about that. And I was humbled by their tremendous humility. They get by on about $34 a month or so, and that's Cuban money. It comes out about $30 U.S., And when I passed around some breath mints during the final exam on the final day of the class after that week of class, you would have thought I had given them steak and lobster. One young man came up afterwards and he pointed and said in broken English, more Spanish, can I have another one? And I gave him three or four. And I thought, oh my, I don't deserve to be here doing this. It's a great privilege. But the point of the story is to tell you a little bit more about the journey itself. Thanks to President Obama, we're actually able to fly from the United States into Cuba now. That was not always the case, you know. We had to go through another country to go to Cuba. Uh, But now we could fly straight from Atlanta to Havana. And that was convenient. But the first leg of the trip is what I need to tell you about. It was from Springfield, Missouri to Atlanta. Red Eye Special. Miss Carla had to take me to the airport very, very early. And I boarded the plane and I got to my row and took my aisle seat. There was a tall lady in the next seat, middle seat. Empty seat by the window. And so people filed in, you know, and they said it would be a full flight. But when they shut the cabin door, we realized that seat in our row remained empty. So she said, let me scoot over and give us both more room. And I said, well, that'd be fine. And then she said, man, I can't wait to get to the beach. I said, oh, you're going on vacation, are you? She said, yeah, my husband and I, we're both physicians, and it's hard to carve out even just a week in our year to just go hit the beach. So we're going to the beach, and our daughter's going as well. I said, excuse me, did you say were? She said, yeah. Your husband's on the plane? Your daughter's on the plane? Yeah. He's up front, she's in the back, I'm here by you. I said, well, ma'am, we got this extra seat. It's the only extra seat on the plane. I'd be glad to move if you want to have your family sit by you here. She said, no, it's okay. My husband does this all the time. He gets these red-eye specials. He says delays are less likely if you go early in the day. And he always puts himself up front and me in the middle and our daughter in the back. I said, really, I'd be glad to move. She said, no, because if we sat together, we just have to talk or something. 
and it would keep us from reading and sleeping. So it's fine. I said, well, okay. And she said, I said, did you say you're physicians? She said, yeah, both my husband and I are physicians. And it's just really hard to carve out time when we can both get off. I said, boy, I bet it is. I said, well, I thank you for what you do for people. And she said, oh, that's, that's okay. We enjoy it, but it's a busy life. You know the next question from her. What do you do? Oh, crud. I try to go incognito. You know, it just helps the witness a little better. So I said, well, I teach at a small college in Joplin. Oh, she said, Missouri Southern? I said, no, no, um, Ozark Christian College. Oh, she said, I've heard of it. Next question. What do you teach? Oh, crud. So I said, well, I teach New Testament and preaching classes. Oh, she said. So you're like, like like a pastor and stuff. And I said, well, uh, yeah, sort of like that. And she said, well, I just think you can never have enough God, but you can sure have too much church. And I said, well, I said, ma'am, I've spent all my life in the church. And I think I know what you're saying anyway. She said, I grew up in Minnesota. I said, really? Minnesota? Yeah, sure. I said, "Uh, my mom's family are all from Minnesota. Where about? She said, just north on the north edge of the Twin Cities. I said, oh, sure. She said, I went to Dutch Reformed Church. And she said, I just every Sunday felt like I just got beaten down. She said, I really tried to be a good person. But she said, every week I walked out thinking, am I that bad? Boy, I was really tempted to say, well, probably. Um, Because there is this Romans 3.23 thing, you know. But I didn't. I said, well, ma'am, doctor, let me tell you a little bit about the church and guilt. At the church, we got guilt down. We're pretty good with guilt. If people come into church feeling pretty good about themselves, we preachers can stand up and say, we'll take care of that. And we can just send them home on four flat tires. So I don't suppose we need to do that, but yeah, it happens. I can understand what you're saying. And she said once again, well, I don't think you can ever have too much God, but I think you can have too much church. And with that, she leaned her head over against the window and she went to sleep. And I went back to my reading and reviewing my notes for my class in Cuba. And I thought to myself, Oh, ma'am, good doctor, if you could just know more intimately the head of the church, the Lord of the church, he could deal with that guilt thing you got going there. Hmm. Well, let me take you not back to five months ago. Let me take, as you well know, back 500 years ago. 1517, October the 31st, there was this former law student who had buckets and buckets of guilt. And he couldn't find his peace with God. And so he thought, to tell you the truth, people study people like you. 
And they've already studied us. And they would tell us, person and profession, people who are Christians and do it for a living, they would say concerning us, some of us go into ministry to try to make God like us more. Maybe if we just work a little harder, God will like us more. Maybe we can deal with our own guilt and shame. If, and that's where Martin Luther was. So he became an Augustinian monk. And 500 years ago, on this very day, he took to his Facebook page, which was a door in a church at Wittenberg, and he typed up 95 propositions, 95 theses that he said he would be willing to debate his own church on. Most of them deal with indulgences. No, that's not the fourth piece of pecan pie at Thanksgiving. That has to do with buying forgiveness for your guilt and shame. And he wrestled a lot with this issue. In fact, his buddy across the river, who he didn't like very much, Tetzel, said as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Got to build St. Peter's Basilica in Rome somehow. So you got to fleece the flock. Anyway, the two clips you saw that started the message deals, first of all, with the more modern rendition, just called Luther. And he's in a thunderstorm. That's exactly what happened. He was scared spitless of that storm. He was afraid he would die. And if he died, he'd have all this guilt and this shame. And so he's prayed to St. Anne. St. Anne is the mother of the Virgin Mary. I will become a monk. I will become a monk. Help me. Help me. Because he just couldn't get rid of his guilt. Hmm. The second clip is really old. You want to know how old? It was made in 1953. Yeah, this woman over here gave birth to me that year. That's how old that is. And he comes out of Vesper service. He comes out of celebrating Holy Communion, but he still has no peace with God. His guilt is overwhelming to him. Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. How can I love a God who wants to damn me? How can I love a God who wants to condemn me? Five months ago, it was a doctor. 500 years ago, it was a law student who became a monk. 2,500 years ago, from the time of Luther, it was a prodigal king in Israel. Remember the story? In the spring of the year, when kings go forth to war, <laughs> I wish David had gone to war. Sometimes you're, fa- you're, you're uh, safer in a foxhole than you are on a balcony. And he saw a woman below him bathing. And you know the rest of the story. He didn't have a problem like my doctor friend on the plane. He didn't have a problem like Martin Luther. He had the opposite problem. Didn't feel guilty at all. Adultery, murder, But then he got a call from the dean of students. (laughs) Then he got a call from Nathan the prophet. And the prophet came in and said, David, 
have a story. There was a rich man, there was a poor man. Rich man had many flocks and herds. The poor man, he had one little... (laughs) 300 miles from here is a sister institution, and a boy was preaching his senior sermon on this text, 2 Samuel 11. But he was a city slicker, bless his heart. He didn't know what E-W-E was. So he said the rich man had many flocks and herds and the poor man had one little ee-wee lamb. (laughs) And instead of taking from his own flock, this rich guy, he took the poor man's little ee-wee lamb (laughs) and he offered that for his banquet. Now you're the king of Israel. What you got to say about that? David's anger boiled hot. And he said that man's life should be taken and he ought to restore what he took fourfold. And Prophet Nathan pointed his ugly accusing finger and said, You're him. And David crumbles to the floor of the Jerusalem Oval Office. And Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 are kind of birthed. We're real sure about Psalm 51. I'm not as sure about Psalm 32, but it makes pretty good sense, as our chapel committee has suggested, that we weave these together today under the theme, When I Feel Guilt. So I'm going to just select various verses from Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 today to maybe help us with this a little bit. But I need to give one huge disclaimer as I start. And it's this. I am not qualified to preach this message. I'm really not. I don't have the kind of psychology and counseling background in me to know really the depths of the human psyche about this issue. I'm more of an exegetical guy. So if you want to know what Chata and Asham and Ra, the Old Testament words for evil and guilt and shame are, If you want a little vocabulary lesson on hamartiology, I can do that. But to probe the depths of the psychology and counseling issues related to guilt and shame, I can't do that. So I, operating out of this great deficit, called on some help. I recruited our local psycho man, Dr. Zeus. We were sitting just up there on the shelf. And I said after chapel just a few weeks, I'd been working on this. I said, Gary, help me. Difference between guilt and shame? Oh yes, oh yes, oh yes. Guilt means I did bad. Shame means I am bad. And typical to resource man... Man, the articles and the essays and the blogs and the links began to come to me from Zeus. And I read what I could about the psychology aspect and the counseling aspect. I would have to tell you this. I'm at a deficit today. I need to know more about this and I'll tell you why. It's because of the therapeutic nature of our culture. Amen? And it's also because most of the evangelism that I'm doing these days is either counseling evangelism or apologetic evangelism. And that's just a flat fact. The people I encounter in churches where I am, I'm usually having to deal with, yes, do you know that Jesus can forgive your sins? But, oh, there's such a backstory 
So I need to know more. And maybe even the scriptures can help us with this a little bit. Can I start the journey by weaving these two psalms together this way? When I feel guilt, I should let it help me. When I feel guilt, I should let it help me. That's right. For heaven's sakes, when you feel guilty, let it work in your favor. Let the Holy Spirit activate the living Word of God and bear down heavy on your sunidasis, your conscience, your moral umpire that calls the balls and strikes of life. Just let that come in on you because it actually can be very, very redemptive. It really can. Now, let me be clear. I'm not talking about unjustified guilt feelings. Some of us have an overworked conscience. And there's a few of us around here like Griff and me that are so insecure we apologize for things we never did. I'm not talking about guilt feelings. I'm talking about honest to goodness guilt that is due to missing the mark and crossing the line and breaking the heart of God. That's what I'm talking about. And what I see here is some scripture that helps me with that. Psalm 32, if you will. Listen, listen. Verse 3. For when I kept silent, that's where we go when we swallow it, don't we? My bones wasted away. Oh yes, our physical, physiological, our bodies are hooked to, you know, our spirits through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. Have you felt his hand? Have you felt his hand? My strength was dried up as in the heat of summer. I've been to Israel in the summer. It's hot. It's really hot. If you will, over to Psalm 51, these words, verse 3, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight, so that you're justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, listen to this, he feels so low. He feels so low. He gives an example of what I hermeneutically would call poetic exaggeration. I don't think he's arguing when you start to sin in life. I could be wrong. There'd be a host of people in the evangelical world that would think I'm wrong. Behold, it was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Wow. That's lower than a snake's belly. And then if you skip over to verse 17, that's kind of the key verse to the whole psalm. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. He loves it when we say, Can guilt work for me, God? Can I bring my guilt to you somehow? And somehow will it make me a better person? (laughs) Well, I've been watching this crazy, crazy World Series. They begin to advertise for the the Winter Olympics. Have you seen those commercials? Just after the turn of the year, 2018, the Winter Olympics. Made me just think about the Olympics. I was chewing on this sermon about guilt and shame and forgiveness and... And I I thought about something happened years ago in the Summer Olympics, not the Winter Olympics. And a track star in the year 2000, her name was Marion Jones. 
Do any of you ever remember Marion Jones? She was five foot ten and fast as lightning. She was a joy to watch. And she won five gold medals. And they took every one of them away. She lied to investigators. She spent six months in prison for that. But she was doping with steroids. And they took back all five gold medals. But you know why I'm really proud of Marion Jones? Is because she had the guts to own it. She admitted that she had done it finally. She confessed. She said, nobody's responsible for this behavior except me. And I'm so proud of Marion Jones. I googled it this morning just to make sure it was right. You could do it. Just Google, take a break. Take a break. She has started a nonprofit. The mayor of Sacramento, California, had her come and speak to school kids. And take a break stands for a, for a ministry she has where she's urging high school students in particular to take a break. Step back. Take a pause and think about what your actions will do down the road in terms of consequences. I honor Marion Jones for showing us an example of when guilt can actually help you. But that's not all these psalms say. You see, they also give us this truth. When I feel guilt, I can or I should lean into God's mercy. Listen to these verses, if you will. This is 32.5. I acknowledge my sin to you. I didn't cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Sounds like somebody's starting to get well as they confess and lean into God's mercy. Looking over here at Psalm 51, and listen how it begins. Now, some of you may know in the Hebrew Bible, we have 21 verses in Psalm 51. In your English Bible, it's just 19. Somebody miscount. No, the superscription that's in third person, I don't know if David wrote it or not, but it's actually in the Hebrew Bible. Our verse 1 starts this way. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. A little later, and we'll read this again. Verse 9, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Do you hear what David is doing? He's just leaning into God's mercy here. Now, I would have to tell you that um, if you look at this text carefully, you'll see what he's doing. It's more artistic than at first glance. On the one side of the ledger is the hamartiology all the sin vocabulary do you notice three of the big ones transgressions ooh, iniquities that's moral impurity sin even the Old Testament word means missing the mark on the other side of the ledger is God's great characteristics his sin is set over against God's great qualities have mercy except that's what the ESV says the reality is that's a word that actually is closer to grace And then he says, according to your steadfast love, you know that word, chesed, God's loving kindness, covenantal love, have mercy. Here's all his sin. Here's all his leaning on to God's mercy. 
I'll tell you what, when we don't lean into His mercy and we swallow it, we're in trouble. John Baker wrote a book with Rick Warren of Saddleback Church. It's called Life's Healing Choices. It's a book that really was all about the Celebrate Recovery ministry. Rick Warren says that 45 to 50% of the people that have come into Saddleback in the last 15 years came out of Celebrate Recovery, trying to get help for their hurts, habits, and hang-ups. That's what I'm saying. I'm doing a lot of counseling evangelism. I don't understand it. So he says that's what happened. And in that book they say this, if you swallow your guilt, your stomach will keep score. True. They also say you are only as healthy as your secrets. You are only as sick, rather. You are only as sick as your secrets. The greater the secrets, the greater your sickness. So, in another meeting, I only have good things to say because I hang around bright people. In another meeting with Michael DeFazio and Shane Wood, I heard them referencing a certain Brene Brown. I had not heard of this woman before. She's kind of an expert on shame. She gave a lesson entitled, uh, a TED Talk rather, Listening to Shame. So they told me about I wrote them later. I emailed and said, hey, in the meeting today, you referred to a Brene. I'm not familiar with this person, but I had great interest in it because of my interest in self-disclosure. When the preacher sort of cracks the door on his heart and lets you look. I said, help me with, who is this? And they gave me the information a little bit. And then lo and behold, sure enough, I looked at the link that Gary Zusiak had sent me, and it was the same person. And I'm glad they were all thinking in the same vein. So I listened to Brene Brown's uh, listening to shame talk, TED talk, 20 minutes. It might not hurt you to listen to it. With all that she's kind of an expert on, has a PhD when it comes to studying things like courage and vulnerability and shame. I got interested in it because of self-disclosure. And she said some things, I jotted them down. I'll put them on the screen for you. Here's one thing she said, vulnerability is not weakness but courage. I can buy that. Two, vulnerability is emotional risk. No kidding. When I announced my doctoral dissertation to my class, they laughed me out of class. You're going to say, the preacher cracking his door in his own life? He'll get laughed out of your church. Yes, it's a risk. That's why I wrote that you have to be discerning. Maybe you shouldn't put everything on Facebook. Well, we'll go on. Number three, shame is the swampland of the soul. You know what that line reminded me of? Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan, when he talked about Pilgrim being in the slough of despond. Boy, I've been there. Number four, she said shame is epidemic in our culture and the empathy is the antidote to it. Just come along somebody's alongside of them and say, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry you're struggling so. How can I cry with you? And then she said finally, vulnerability is the way to find our way back to each other. In fact, she made this statement. She said, we will never solve the race crisis of this country if we aren't willing to be vulnerable and find our way back to each other. I was blessed by it. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Shane. Thank you, Zeus. But if I could add a PS, if I could just put a little footnote, this wasn't her purpose, so I'm not blaming her. 
But most of the things she talked about were on a horizontal level. And I just want to tell you, you will never lean into God's mercy until you deal with the vertical issue and how much your sin has been in front to Him and not just broken His law, but broken His heart. And so I just, all you can do is just throw yourself on the mercy of God's court. When I feel guilt, I need to let guilt help me. When I feel guilt, I need to lean into God's mercy. Oh, I'm so glad I can say this last little piece. And that's when I feel guilt, I can actually experience renewal. I can actually experience renewal. If you will, you will see these kind of verses. Listen to how Psalm 32.1 begins. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the one against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no uh, deceit. A little later in Psalm 51, it doesn't get much better than this. In fact, I'm going to read a couple verses that won't be on the screen. i got to start here. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. You know what the word purge means? It means descend me. Descend me. He says, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice. Hebrew word, dance. Dance. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. Here it is. You want to sing it? I'm not going to do that today. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit to me. Restore to me the joy of salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. He's beginning to get well. He's beginning to experience renewal. So much so that he goes on in the rest of the psalm and says, Then I will teach transgressors thy ways. Then God will accept my testimony and my offerings and my sacrifices. Yes, he will. Because he's been renewed. Can I let you in on just a little exegetical secret for a moment? This word create. 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 Hebrew, bara. It's the second word in your Old Testament in the Genesis account. Because the phrase in the beginning is all one word in Hebrew. Then it's bara Elohim. In the beginning, God created. So I thought, you know, I've studied this before, but you know how it is with Scripture. There's always new things to learn. And so I, I just I, I started doing concordance work. And I had never seen this before. That bara, when translated into English with just the verb create, not created, ed, or other words, when you, it only appears in Genesis and Psalms and Isaiah. That's it. And I got to looking at this and I thought, holy smokes, this only appears with original creation and ultimate creation. You say, wait a minute, that's revelation. Uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. Isaiah 65. It predicts it. So it's original creation and ultimate creation. And you know how else it's used? Bara. When God made Israel. When God made His people. When God renewed His people. So my thinking is, the key to getting us from original creation to ultimate creation is new creation. Any man is in Christ. He's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's when you experience renewal. Titus 3.5 says it this way. The washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Jesus talked to Nick at night. 
in John 3, 5 and said, you have to be washed to the baptism of water and spirit or you can't enter the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. I have a favorite verse that I use. I'm a terrible counselor. I already told you I'm at a deficit for this theme today. I basically just tell people to just stop it. Just stop it. Just hit them with the Bible. Stop it. It cuts down your counsel load. Anyway, so I... But I got one verse that's tucked away in my hip pocket and I always use it. You ever heard used it? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1.9 That is the counselor's best friend. I have used that over and over and over. And I suppose I could find a way to wrap this up a little bit today. But I really got to thinking that maybe it'd be better for you to hear from one of your own. So I want you to today. And I hope you, I hope you will cut a lot of slack and grace. Because this woman is going to take a tremendous vulnerable risk right now. And it takes guts to do what she's doing. Emily, come on. Emily is in my Matthew class. And the semester started. She was a credit student. She changed to an audit student. That has nothing to do with what she's doing now. This sister got married. Pretty busy. All kinds of stuff. You know. It's okay. These things happen to all of us. But the students had turned in a book report. And... um, I dismissed the class. This was probably a week or so after the book report. I don't remember. And after everybody was out of the room, Emily came back. And we were there, just the two of us in L14. And she said, I need to talk to you. Okay. What's on your heart? And I'll let her tell you. This is my confession. I cheated on a book report. I had a lot going on that weekend. I conjured up a million excuses in my head as to why I could fudge the amount I read. So I lied. I wrote in my confessional statement that I had read 100% of a book when really I had only read the first three chapters. I tell this to each of you today, not out of shame and not because Mark asked me to. I tell you this in order to rid the sin and shame of power and and to... rid the sin and shame of a hold that it would have on my relationship with Jesus and in my future ministry. My guilt when captured by the Holy Spirit led me to conviction and and in turn to confession. I confess to you that I lied, but I also confess to you that I am free from shame through Jesus. So here's what I came to say today to you from all the way up in my office. Here it is. When I feel guilt, I can wallow in shame or I can go under the knife of God and get well. So I just ask you, anybody need surgery today? 